Now we're going to switch gears entirely, and we're going to jump into our passage in James this morning as we continue uh, what we've been doing. If you're newer with us, we've been preaching through the book of James. We're on James chapter 5 now. We're coming to the end, and this is the, the passage is uh, James 5, 1 through 6 this morning. It's really special for me this morning because this is the passage actually that every night uh, when I tuck Owen in for bed, I read this. he wants me to read this passage to him. So this is really special. So go ahead and look at it with me now. It says this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I was joking about reading this passage to Owen every night before bed, by the way. This is a doozy. We're gonna, I'm excited to jump into this. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Whew. All right. I want to pray and ask the Lord that he would help me before we dive into this passage. So please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for all of it. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That death is not the end. God, the reality is that every single one of us one day will die if you don't come back first. We thank you that we can know that everyone who is in Christ will be saved. Now, Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning who doesn't know Jesus that they would come to you, God, confess their sin, and believe in their hearts, and that they would be saved. Lord, help us as we look to your word now to see what you have for it, for us in it. Guard my heart, guard my tongue, help me to be humble and to preach your word truthfully and accurately, and may you help us apply it through the Spirit to our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage is a little intense, huh? Now, one of the things I do appreciate about preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible is that we oftentimes come upon passages to preach that we would probably never preach otherwise. Like if I was doing a, just a topical series on whatever, like this wouldn't be, even if we were doing a topical series on money, right, the biblical view of money, this wouldn't be a passage that I would uh, probably choose to preach. But here we are. In fact, I was thinking this week, like if I just posted like this passage on Facebook but didn't say it was in the Bible, I would guess that that people would probably be like, did you see Pastor Mike? He turned into a communist. Like this, like this passage is like that intense, right? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. I mean, James, what in the world is going on here? So it's a doozy, but whenever we wonder why a passage is in Scripture, we always need to go back to our verse in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. So even if at first glance this passage seems to be pretty intense, and if you're just reading through James in your personal Bible reading, you might just kind of skim right past it. We need to remember God gave it to us for a reason, so we don't apologize for anything that's in Scripture. What we do is we use our minds and we try to dig whatever we can out of that 
passage. And there's a lot for us this morning, so I really am excited to jump in. So what's this passage all about? What's going on here? Well, there's a couple things that we need to understand about the context here. The first thing we need to figure out is who exactly is James referring to when he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Like, who is he talking about there? Who are the rich? And it's a little bit tricky to figure out, but through the context, there's a lot of uh, smarter people than me who have uh, figured out that he's actually talking about non-believers here who are extremely wealthy and who were using that wealth to like fraudulently rip off their workers and persecute the church. So James actually isn't writing this passage to believers. He's actually referring to non-believers here when he talks about that. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that we can just be like, all right, close up our Bibles, pray, and we'll move on uh, next week to the next passage. There still is a lot for us to gain from this passage, but we need to approach it from the understanding that James is, who he's referring to in this passage aren't believers, but he's actually referring to non-believers here. Secondly, we need to ask the question of simply, why is James talking like this? Like, why is he saying things like, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you, and your gold and silver have corroded, and they're going to eat your flesh like fire? Like, why is he being so intense? Does it not seem a little bit like James, uh, he kind of finished up chapter 4, went to bed, and then woke up really cranky the next morning, and just kind of, like, decided he was going to go off? Like, why is he talking like this? Well, there's actually a very specific reason that he's writing like this. And the reason is that he's actually mirroring the language or using similar language to that which the Old Testament prophets use. Now, it's easy for us, I think, to avoid the Old Testament prophets oftentimes when we're reading our Bibles because it can be a little bit scary and intimidating and hard to understand what they're saying. But the understanding the prophets is actually really important. And I'd encourage you to, to read the prophets and uh, and. And, uh, and read things that help uh, teach us how to understand uh, what the prophets are saying. Because it's really important. And when we understand the prophets, it actually helps us understand a lot more about our Bibles. And so what James is doing here is he's actually using prophetic language. Now, there's a million examples that I could give you of very similar language in the Old Testament prophets. But one example is Isaiah 13.6. just says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. So it's that same kind of idea. Wail, weep, howl. The day of the Lord is near. So whenever we see language like this in the Old Testament, we need to understand that it's referring to the coming judgment of God. And they use strong language like this, almost like a wake-up call. Say, you need to understand God's judgment is coming And so what James is doing here is using that similar kind of language to tell these rich people who are not believers that they need to be uh, careful because God's judgment is near. So if the audience then is non-believers and the stern language that he uses is to warn them of the coming judgment... What does this passage have to do with us? Like we can sum up this whole passage of saying like these rich non-believers need to be careful because God is going to judge them. So again, what does that have to do with us? Well, it has a lot to do with us. There's one thing in particular that I think it has to do with us. Something that we talk about here at Rock Prairie uh, a lot because the Bible talks about it a lot. Is, is learning to live our lives in such a way that the gospel impacts and changes everything about us. 
changes everything that we do. It changes everything that we think. It changes every decision that we make. The gospel needs to be the framework for which we, through which we live our lives. Every decision we make, every thought that we think should go through that gospel grid, that gospel framework. And we fail at that all the time, but that should be our goal. Now the problem is, currently... We are living temporarily as sojourners and strangers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We happen to have our home right now in a country called America, right? And there's some great blessings about living in America. There truly are. And there's some things that make about living in America that make being a follower of Christ difficult. And one of the things that makes being a follower of Christ difficult living in America is that the, uh, the value of our culture is different than the value that Scripture gives us, specifically when it comes to money. We live in a culture that values wealth above all else. We tend to think higher of people who have more money and lesser of people who have less in our culture. That's the way we're kind of taught subconsciously to think. Right? I mean, it's literally called, what's it called when you go from being very uh, poor to being very rich? It's literally called the American dream, right? So this is something that our culture always says, this is a good thing, right? Gaining greater and greater wealth is always a good thing. It's always something uh, to be proud of. It's always something that every person should aspire to. And there's a temptation for all of us as the church to fall into that kind of thinking, no matter how wealthy we are or poor we are, to think like, man, if I just made as much money as so-and-so, right? If I could just make like X amount of dollars, these problems that I have would be way less. Yeah, I know there's problems with having more money, but I'd rather have those problems than these current problems. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Like, if I could just have more, I'd be in such a better position, And what James tells us in this passage is that is very much not the way that we as Christians are called to be thinking. And so there's, I think, one lesson above all else that we need to take from this passage, which is simply this. Don't envy the unrighteous rich. Don't envy the unrighteous rich. James is talking about these people who seem to have it all. They seem to be the most successful in life. And yet, James is saying they are not somebody who we should aspire to be or look up to or to envy. So that's the lesson for us. And there's four, don't envy the unrighteous rich. And there's four reasons in this passage that we shouldn't envy the unrighteous rich. And here's the first, is that they are trusting in the wrong thing. They're trusting in the wrong thing. Look, at, look again at verses 1 to 3. It says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here's what he's doing. He's giving this picture of people who are just absolutely hoarding their wealth. See, back then, the number one sign of wealth was how much grain that you were able to store up for yourself. And so what he's saying is that you have hoarded so much grain that it's rotting away. You have no intention of even using it. You're just having it to have it, and it's all rotting away. Another sign of being wealthy was the clothing that you would wear and the amount of clothing and how ornate your clothing was. He's saying the same thing. You've amassed all this clothing for yourself that you could never even wear it, and so moths are just eating it. 
And he says, your gold and silver have corroded. So it's just this, this picture of somebody who's just heaping up and hoarding wealth for themselves that is just becoming useless. And then he says this key phrase. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And that phrase, I think, is the key to understanding what James is getting at. See, right now, whether you know it or not, we are living in the last days. We are currently living in the last days. What do I mean by that? I don't necessarily mean that Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime, although praise the Lord if he does, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We all want that to happen, but that's not necessarily what I mean. What I mean when I say we're living in the last days is that ever since Jesus ascended back into heaven, we are now living in this time where we don't know when he's going to come back. But when he does come back, we know that certain things are going to happen. So it could be one day, it could be a thousand years. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But the Bible tells us what's going to happen when he does. The Bible tells us Jesus is going to reign on the earth. He's going to bind up Satan. Everyone who has died in Christ will be given their new glorified bodies. The earth will be renewed and restored, and all of us who are followers of Jesus will live together in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, praise the Lord for that. Like, come quickly, Jesus. Make that happen now, God, if that's your will. But what James is saying is when that happens, all this stuff that we've worked so hard to accumulate for our whole lives, how much value is that going to have when Jesus comes back? Nothing. It won't matter if you have a dollar or a million dollars or more in your bank account in those days. It's going to be worthless. Like when that trumpet sounds, when we all hear that trumpet sound, the things that we've worked so hard to accumulate will become worthless. All those bitcoins that Larry David tried to get us to buy during the Super Bowl, like I don't know if they're worthless now, but they will be worthless when that day happens. So what James is doing is he's giving this indictment of these rich that they're, tro- they're, they're hoarding up this treasure, but it's the wrong kind of treasure in light of eternity, and it's rotting away. Imagine this. Imagine if you had a friend who was uh, getting ready to move to Florida, which sounds just amazing to all of us in the middle of February in Indiana. So imagine you had a friend that's getting ready to move to Florida, and you're super excited for them to do that. But imagine like right before they move to Florida, they start to hit all the stores, and they just start buying up all the like like uh, winter coats and snow pants and ski goggles and hats and mittens and the, buy a bunch of snow blowers and shovels and all these like winter things right before they move to Florida. What would you say to this friend as they're like, they're like gathering up all these things? What are you doing? You're crazy. That's right. You realize you don't need these things in Florida where you're going. These things are going to be worthless. So why are you spending all your time and energy and resources buying up all these things that in the place where you're going mean absolutely nothing? Well, that's the indictment that James is giving to the rich people here, that you're amassing all these things, and when the trumpet sounds, it's going to be worthless. And here's a lesson for us, church, right? Are we doing that same thing? Are we doing that same thing? Are we working hard just to just get all the stuff that we can that eventually is going to be worthless? Jesus talked about this in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And you can certainly hear James thinking about this passage when he wrote what he wrote in James chapter 5. But Jesus said this in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the lesson for us. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The issue isn't necessarily the amount of stuff. It's your heart in regards to those things. And we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of our time this morning. But it's all about the heart. See, these unrighteous rich were hoarding up things and trusting in these things that were going to be worthless in light of eternity. So James said, don't look up to those people. It makes no sense how they're living. It makes no sense what you're doing. That's not our goal. So the question is, where's your treasure? Are you storing up treasures here on earth or are you storing up treasures in heaven? The unrighteous rich were uh, trusting in their piles of wealth which we're only going to amount to a rotted, moth-eaten, rusty pile of garbage. So church, don't trust a rotted, moth-eaten, rusty pile of garbage to save you. Second, James tells us not to envy the unrighteous rich because they will be held accountable for their actions. They'll be held accountable for their actions. Look at verse 4 to the beginning of verse 5. It says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Man, ouch. James is being super direct here about what the unrighteous rich have done wrong in this case. They have treated, cheated their workers out of their pay. And see, workers in that day, the way it worked was that you would work for the whole day and then you get paid at the end of the day. And many people were dependent on getting paid at the end of the day so that they could feed their families. And so they would expect after they worked that they get paid what they were owed. See, what James is giving this picture of is not only do they have all these hordes of piles of grain and clothes and gold and silver that they can't do anything with and so they're just rotting away. Not only that, but these people who have worked for them, who have helped them get this wealth, who have rightly earned a wage, now they're making up excuses of why they can't pay him. And this is a big deal to God. James says that they're going to be held accountable for their actions. See, God sees injustice, church. He sees it. It never sneaks past him. God is a God who is just. And in every case, when injustice happens on this earth, God sees it. And he cares deeply about it. The cries of the, of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I think there's kind of three takeaways here for us. The first is that this, it's if you're in a position to be an employer to people, you need to make sure you treat your employees fairly. Pay them what they have earned. It's a big deal to God when you don't. And you know, maybe you're an employer. I don't know. This is you know, just kind of a, a random thing, but it's in God's word. Maybe if you're in a position to be an employer and you've done wrong by someone in the past, I think about... Uh, Zacchaeus, right, who was a tax collector, he stole a bunch of money from people. And then when he had that encounter with Jesus, what did he do? He went and paid back more than, was, than he owed. So maybe that's an opportunity for you to say, man, I, have, I, I know I have this employee that I didn't do right by. I need to go and make things right. It's an important thing to God. 
Well, secondly, maybe you've never been in a position to be an employer, but maybe you've been in a position where this has happened to you. Like, you feel this. Like, you've done work for somebody. You've earned a certain wage, and they stiffed you. <laughs> maybe you just, like, you know, you feel deeply, like, how hard this is. Like, you're working hard to provide for your family. You do the work that you're called to do, that you're supposed to do. You do it well, and then you're not compensated for it. Let me just say, God, God hears you. <laughs> In that he sees it and he cares now it doesn't always mean unfortunately that like you're going to get a venmo payment from god to make up from for what uh, you were owed but it does mean that god sees it and that he cares and that should be a big deal to you praise god that no small injustice slips by his sights doesn't mean it's up to us to correct every injustice we can't always do that but we know that god is a righteous and just one in the end And then third, maybe you've never been in either of these two groups, right? We're still not off the hook because I think this is a reminder that God cares how we use our resources that he has given us, right? See at the beginning of verse 5, you lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. What does that mean? What does that look like? I want to be clear, I don't see anywhere in scripture where it says again that like wealth or money on its own is sinful, like that, that in, in and of itself it's sinful because it can be a real blessing from the Lord, an opportunity for you to have your needs cared for and to care for the needs of others. But it's, it's not the money that's the issue, it's the heart that's the issue. And so for us, I think we need to ask this question, how am I doing being a steward of what God has given me? Am I hoarding it, what God's given me, or am I using it to bless others? Do I see an increase in what I have as an opportunity to be more generous or as an opportunity to live in more luxury and self-indulgence? And I can't tell you what that line is. I can't. Because, again, it's a heart issue. And there's times when God allows us to use things that he's given us uh, to enjoy, to enjoy the things that God has given us. And that's not a sin, And again, in and of itself. But when we're hoarding things so that we can live in luxury and self-indulgence without being generous to others, I think that's um, when we come into a real problem. And that's a heart issue. It's not a black and white thing. But don't envy the unrighteous rich, James says, the people who use their money to live in lavish luxury. Like how often do we just think like, oh man, you see somebody who just like has all the money in the world and they're just living their life going all over the world on these crazy trips and doing all these things like man that'd be nice what's James say he says don't envy those people their cries the cries of the people that they have defrauded have reached the Lord of hosts and they will be held accountable all that leads us to the final reason not to envy the unrighteous rich, which is this, that they will face judgment. This is where James gives us probably the most graphic word picture at the end of verse 5. He says, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, when I was in eighth grade, I think I've shared with you before, we moved, my family moved from, we grew up in Wheaton, so in the Chicago area, uh, on the suburbs, to, uh, we moved from there, so I was a real city kid, and we moved from there to a small town called Archbold, Ohio, which is where my family lives now, which is basically the size of Tipton, a farming community very similar to Tipton, and so I had a lot to learn about what it meant to be living in the country uh, as a city boy at heart, and so one of the things that 
was new to me was the idea that you could raise an animal uh, for 4-H. And so our next door neighbors had this cow that they were raising for 4-H named Butchie. And my brother and I loved going over and seeing Butchie because, again, that was not something that you could just go to your neighbor and see a cow. Uh, so we loved going over and visiting Butchie. And then we were excited for them when, you know, the 4-H fair was coming and the show. And they were showing us how, you know, you lead the cow around and do the judging and everything. One thing we were not prepared for was what happens after 4-H. And we didn't know that we needed to be prepared for that until uh, the next door neighbors brought over a whole bunch of butchie burgers for us to put in the freezer. <laughs> and my brother and I were horrified by this. Eventually we got over it. Butchie was pretty delicious. So that was a good lesson for us to learn. I didn't realize that, that cow was being raised for slaughter. Butchie also probably didn't realize that um, she was being raised for slaughter. When you think about that analogy, that's what James is saying about these unrighteous rich people who are living their lives in luxury and self-indulgence, not caring who they defraud, not caring how much they're hoarding away that's just going to waste. He says they're fattening their hearts on a day of slaughter. God's judgment is coming, James says. So we don't envy people like that. We're just fatting themselves up to be slaughtered. A very graphic image. And then he says they've condemned and murdered the righteous person, the one who has not resisted. Don't envy these people. They might look like they're winning right now. Again, this is a very prescient message for our culture because it's certainly the people who look like they're winning in our society right now, the ones who have the most, who are the most self-sufficient. They might look like they're winning right now. They might look like they're fat and happy and everything's going their way, but all they're doing is heading towards the day of judgment. Don't envy the unrighteous rich. All right, well, let's close here on, uh, let's try to close on a little bit of a word of encouragement because as important as this passage is, it certainly doesn't end necessarily on a happy note. So there's just a few things I think that we as Christians from all different economic backgrounds, but by virtue of the fact that we do live in America, are generally considered wealthy among the rest of the world. There are a few things that we should do as we think about this passage and we think about applying the gospel to our hearts through this passage. And the first is just to simply ask yourself, like, what's your relationship to money in your heart? In your heart. Do you see wealth, more money, as the answer to your problems? It's not the answer. And it's a terrible thing to trust in. Sometimes having more money can blind us to that fact that we're just fattening ourselves for the slaughter. And so it's just a question. Are you storing up treasure on earth because you think it's your way out of certain problems? Or are you storing up treasure in heaven? It's a heart issue first. And we need to confront that in our hearts. That's the first thing. And then secondly, I think we need to ask, how does that heart relationship to money actually play out in your actual budget like in the way that you actually think about and spend your money because it's easy to say I, I don't have a problem with how I spend money but if you aren't being generous with the resources that God's given you then the truth might be otherwise 
Now, one of my favorite passages about giving, in fact, probably my favorite passage about giving in the whole Bible is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is such a great passage. See, Paul is relaying this story about the Macedonian church to the church in Corinth. And the Macedonian church is full of believers who are living A, in extreme poverty, and B, under extreme persecution. So that's what the life that they're living. They're, they're all very poor, and they're all being persecuted. And Paul visited the Macedonian church. And what ended up happening, Paul says in verse 4, by the end of his visit, was that they were begging us earnestly for the privilege of taking part in giving to the saints. Imagine that. Imagine if, like missionaries, had to turn away people who were begging them, can I please give you a little bit more? Please. I know you say you have enough, but it's just such a privilege for me to give what I have, even though I have nothing, in some cases. It's such a privilege for me to give. I'm just begging you. That's what Paul's saying. And he's relaying that to the Corinthian church who were not doing a good job of giving. He's saying, this Macedonian church, they're begging me for the privilege to give. And that's our heart. That's the way our hearts should be when it comes to our relationship to giving. See, at Rock Prairie, we really don't lay on the guilt trip about giving financially. And that's because, A, that's not what we're trying to do. We don't want you to give out of a feeling of guilt And B, that's not what Scripture does. We want you to give generously because God has worked incredible things in your heart. And so we live our lives in in generosity, not only just with money, but in our time, in the way that we view other people, in the way that we view our gifts. We're called to just be a generous people. A stingy Christian should be an oxymoron because we're called to be overflowing for others. So we want you to give generously because God has worked miraculously in your heart. And so the passage, I think, gives us just a great opportunity to ask, where is my treasure? And then does my actual heart, does my heart reflect that in a way that I see generosity as a privilege because I'm a follower of Jesus, not a burden? That we can be free of feeling like all of our stuff and all of our money and all the things we're trying to hoard for ourselves are going to save us. We can be free of that because we know what really saves the blood of Jesus, which we've been given. See, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are a follower of Jesus, that's already happened to you. Praise God for that. God has already poured out his blessing on us as his sons and daughters. See, there's certain blessings to be ri- being rich in this life your heart's in the right place and there's certain blessings to being poor in this life if your heart's in the right place the point is what am I doing right now in my heart and in my actions with what God has given me so let me just beg you once again don't be buying up a bunch of winter clothes on your way to Florida Take whatever the Lord has blessed you with and try your best to use it to reflect God's glory and to show the world that you've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if that's true, who needs a whole bunch of moth-eaten clothes anyway? Amen? Let's pray. God, again, we just come to you and we praise you for the incredible hope that we have in the gospel, for the incredible blessing that you've poured out on us Not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but only because of your grace and the great love with which you loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if while we were enemies, 
you gave us Jesus, how much more now do you want to pour out every blessing on us? God, in our hearts, we sometimes think we, we know what those blessings should look like, but we don't. So help us to be a people who are content, who are filled with joy, who are not anxious, but who are overflowing in generosity because of the generosity that's been poured out on us, God. Forgive us where we failed in this. Forgive us for forgetting that you take care of every bird, every sparrow. You take care of us. You know the number of the hairs on our heads. Surely, you will take care of us. Help us to trust you. Help us to not lay up treasure for ourselves on earth, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but help us to lay up for, for ourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We don't know that day. We don't know the hour. No one does. Not even the Son, only the Father. We pray that Jesus would come quickly, but in the meantime, with however much time you have for us, with however many days you've numbered for us, God, which you already know, we ask that we would live them, bringing honor and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.